Church family, it's good to be together with you today. You know, we are taking a quick pause in our series walking through the life of Moses. We're going to pick that up. We have two weeks left. So come back for the next two Sundays to hear the end of his story, which is not the end of our story by any stretch, but so much to learn from that, and I've appreciated this series. But today, we're taking a brief aside to talk about anything we wanted to. So, would you join me in Luke chapter 12? Uh, I determined that I wanted to invite our church family into something that I needed to hear in this moment, in this season of me and my family's life. And so, you're welcome. Uh, you get to deal with all of, all of our problems. Um, I hope that's okay with you. I, I think it's also a problem that our culture has that's why it's maybe such a problem for me, and, and so I invite you to, to listen to God's word together as we look at it. You know, one of the questions we'll be going after in this conversation today is, how do we grow in our relationship with God? You're here today right now, you're committed to this idea of gathering for worship as a family. You're already interested in that, Right? So how do we best grow in our relationship with God? This last Sunday night, uh, Pastor Scott and I were in a conversation with our Discover Bethel class talking about this idea. How can we best as individuals in a church and together a collective in the church family grow? And we've put together some priorities as a church we want people to lean into. Not attending every function, but engaging worship and community and service and mission all as priorities in our life. And as we think about how to engage those priorities, one of those kind of typical answers that if you've hung out at all in church for a long time, you might be tempted to use as, quote, Sunday school answers to how I grow and my relationship with God or what? Two things. What would you guess? We don't have any guesses. That's probably our first problem. <laughs> I feel like I was misled in the hiring process. Um, <laughs> no, maybe you might say, read your Bible. And what's the other one? Pray. See, there you go. Read your Bible and pray. And don't let me belittle those. Church, if there's any place to start, it is reading and listening to God through his word and talking with him, listening to him. That's where we start. Those are spiritual disciplines. And just uh, in this last fall season, I understand you took a season right around Thanksgiving where you talked about spiritual disciplines as a church, things we do together and individually to grow in our relationship with God. If we were to look at a full list, it might include scripture, meditation, and prayer, and also fasting, and solitude, and service, and celebration, and generosity, and confession, and Sabbath. There are a lot of practices, habits, we could bring into our life that enable us to grow in our relationship with God. Spiritual disciplines are age-old practices that draw us to God where we can know true satisfactions. It's how we adopt kind of his ways and his lifestyle. Jesus lived and embodied these practices. And he said to his followers, follow me, apprentice under my ways and under my life. And something else that Jesus did was he lived in simplicity. 
simplicity. That's going to be kind of the overarching idea that we're going to talk about today is the spiritual discipline, the habit of simplicity. I love in our lead collective group, there's about 100 of us here at Bethel across our campuses that are kind of committed to taking a year to really kind of put into hyperdrive our hyperdrive, our pursuit of God. And together we're embracing and holding each other accountable to engaging many of these spiritual disciplines in our life, getting away for times of uh, solitude and Sabbath with God and engaging scripture memory and um, taking the time to confess to each other and, and to grow in our relationship with God. These are going to be good things. And you ought to ask around to your friends and family who are in the lead collective to see how those are going, to hear how terrified we are about trying some of these things, and to see what God does out of them. But Jesus lived in simplicity, and I believe we do well to follow his ways. If Jesus was a proficient tradesman. You, you might know that he was a carpenter, right? So he probably, over a decade, apprenticed and trained and had experience in a craft. And this activity, this job, probably brought stability to his life. From what we could tell, he probably had a livable wage where he was able to work and make money, support his family, his lifestyle. But then again, what we can tell from Jesus' life is that that income, that stability, didn't have a hold on Jesus' heart. When God moved in his heart and called him into a kingdom ministry, he left those things behind. And from what we can tell for Jesus, it wasn't a sore spot. He walked right into it. He left a job earning money, left behind any possessions in order to Go about the ministry and work God had for him to do. I mean, I want, to, I want us to picture that right now. If you in your season of life were to feel an obvious call from God, what I need you to do requires you to quit your job and walk away from any earned income. And all the cascading implications. You're going to have to sell your house. You have to sell, liquidate everything. You're not even going to have a vehicle. I hope you have good walking shoes. Right? Like, that's the kind of jarring change that Jesus went through. Now, we also know that Jesus didn't end up living in poverty. He seemed to own a simple, though well-made garment, kind of one high-quality piece of clothing that he could wash and reuse and wear all the time. He was supported by some wealthy donors, men and women, who invested in his ministry and supported what God was doing, so much so that he had to appoint somebody on his team to keep track of the finances as they were going from town to town in order to support their travel and food. He was also hosted in many people's homes to eat meals in average and wealthy homes alike. And yet in that tension... Between leaving a dependable, predictable lifestyle and then also not yet living in poverty, something profound happened. Jesus seemed to thrive. He didn't have a place to call home. He had no sure retirement strategy. He had no recreational toys for the weekend. But in this simple season of ministry, Jesus knew peace and joy, and maybe this is the hardest one, seem to know contentment with enough. Contentment with enough. 
just like you and me, right? We could pull up our Amazon Prime accounts and double-check that, right? You could pay attention to the Memorial Day sale advertisements today that are telling us people gave everything for you to buy more things. Contentment with enough, right? You haven't struggled at all recently with wondering why your friend and peer got better, uh, a better job placement or, or a better company or, or better benefits or, or better raises. And you haven't ever wondered about why that one girlfriend from college seems to go on all those awesome vacations that you just dream about going on. And you've never struggled with the fact that your neighbor picked up that cooler item and now you need that cooler item. And we definitely don't upgrade our technology every six months, right? We're content with enough. I mean, we struggle with this. And I found my heart right now in this season of life where kind of everything went up in the air, right? We sold our house. We moved to Indiana. And, and then we just bought a house. And in this season where, like, you're kind of starting over with all of the stuff that was in the movie van, uh, which maybe you wish you were starting over without those things too, right? Uh, on the moving day especially. And, and in that season, you can find, like, the claws of this cultural consumerism concept tearing at your soul, right? Like, what you need to be happy is, right? Like, it's that address, it's that zip code, it's that school district, it's that uh, next item, it's that furniture piece, it's that paint color, it's that shopping spree at Hobby Lobby, right? Like, man, happiness for us seems to be just out there, and you can buy it. We want to be happy. And church, that's not the problem. God designed us to want to be happy because he designed us to want to enjoy him forever. Our desire to be happy isn't the problem. The problem is we think more will get us there. We want to be happy. That's not the problem. The problem is we think more of anything is going to be the thing that gets us there. It's that rush you get right before you spend that money that two days later isn't there. More friends, more time, more stuff, more house, more leisure activities, more success, more, more, more. That's what pulls at our hearts, isn't it? In fact, as Christians, sometimes we've been known, unfortunately, I think, for being at war against things. <sighs> And, and not just holding out God's love, which makes that war against evil, right? And, and in that fight against things, often we've been prone to point the en- our finger at an enemy. And the enemy is all sorts of things. In the meantime, I think we miss the enemy that's like sleeping in our house with us. In fact, the sociologists observed, in effect, atheism hasn't replaced Christianity, Shopping has. Right? The problem isn't necessarily out there. The problem is what we're already all doing. Finding any source of identity, fulfillment, and joy short of the one who designed us to enjoy him. One of the most um, 
kind of repeated experiences I've had as we get ready to look at Luke 12 in life is the opportunity to go on many mission trips. How many of you have been on a, a local trip or a go trip? Uh, how many of you have Verge students who have been on mission trips? I mean, we need to get some more hands up in here in the days to come. That's a priority and a life-changing opportunity to see what God is doing around the world. We look forward to a season where those are, are more approachable kind of post a COVID lockdown world. And on the mission trips I've been privileged to go on, one of the most repeated experiences is the adults or the students, whoever's on the trip with us, coming away with kind of the same learned takeaway every single time. We would go into a culture of people who had far less than us, whether it was in our own zip code or halfway around the world, had far less than us. And we would see the way they lived, see the way they hosted us, and see the way they were generous towards us, and see the joy in their faces. And us as a team, we'd walk away with the same response. Like, I don't understand how they have so much joy. As we visit with brothers and sisters in Christ in a church environment where their homes look like our sheds and we're just profoundly disturbed, how can they attempt to be generous to us? Why are they content? I don't understand this. And the reason why that's so often a reaction for us is because we've lived and grown up in a culture that has fed us a lie from birth at every turn that says, in order to be happy, you need to get more, you need to have better, you need to experience life in a certain way. And so when we see people around the world living with joy and not having any of those things, our brains break, Right? That doesn't make any sense to us because we've been fed a lie and believed it that we needed something more to have enough. Church family, is our, are our lives filled with stuff? And has that made our life full of meaning? Jesus warned us to avoid operating in this consumerism paradigm. And he gave us the grace and ability and advice we need to see the world through his eyes instead. And in Luke chapter 12 verse 13, we see him begin to address that and give us some application that I think will be meaningful. In this moment, Jesus is in the middle of a sermon and a conversation teaching people and someone in the audience quite rudely interrupts. Don't learn from this man's lesson. No, someone in the in the Meadow on the hillside in the city street where Jesus was teaching, wherever that was, interrupts Jesus and asks him a question. So verse 13 tells us this moment. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, that's Jesus, said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? This is... Maybe not enough context for us to catch everything that's happening here, but this is a familiar concept. If you've worked or lived around children, you often understand this sibling rivalry. Like, tell them to give it to me. And this guy tell, comes to Jesus, a grown adult, and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's not coming, evidently, with a heart of like genuine openness to what's right and fair. He's not saying, Jesus, we need advice here. We don't know how to solve this. Would you help us sort through how to fairly and equitably and justly distribute my father's inheritance? He's saying, tell him to give me my stuff. 
And Jesus, maybe sensing the inclination of his heart and aware of the mission that God has for him to do, says, I'm not solving your family problem. That's not my mission right now. And then he kind of opens up his shoulders and speaks past the man to everyone around, sharing a truth that gets at the heart of this man's question, perceiving what this man needs, and acknowledging that everyone in his crowd needed to hear this truth as well. And Jesus said to them, so he turns to the crowd, verse 15, Jesus said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus addresses what lies beneath this man's request, his desire for more. And he says, be on guard against covetousness. Be on guard against greed. He's rooting the reason for interacting with this man in a simple truth. That our lives don't consist, they aren't made up of our possessions. The good life in that sense is not what we have. For Jesus, then, stuff does not equal the good life. That's the, the truism he's giving out. The good life is not the stuff we have. And to make his point even more clear, he goes on to share in Luke chapter, in Luke verse 16, a parable. And if Jesus, I think, if Jesus found the need to elaborate this, in a culture and a time and a place where the average working person didn't have a whole lot, I feel like Jesus would want to elaborate even more to a culture like ours where we do. So in verse 16, Jesus said this as a way of sharing a story to back up the truth. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I got it. I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And then I will store all my grains. And then I will say to my soul. Are we noticing a lot of first person pronouns here? I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And to us in America, in 2022, this feels like it ought to be success. This is a good story, Jesus. Thank you. I've been looking for a life first. Now I know. Right? Like, everything went well. I have a bumper crop of excess. I have to invest in more in order to have my more. And now my soul can finally be at rest. All these years laboring and working. And finally, I can be happy. I mean, this feels like the slogan for every state's, like, visitor bureau, for every state's business bureau. Like, this is, this is the good life to us. But it's not to Jesus. And that ought to scare us. In verse 20, in this story that Jesus is spinning, it says this, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Church, there's a lot we could say about finances here. That's not really the point. We're going above the financial principle to what a life of simplicity might mean across all areas of what we own. Like this man, we as a society default to believe that gathering and consuming, getting money and stuff will provide us a good and happy and safe life. We sleep better at night knowing about the stuff we own. We aspire to have more. Ask somebody their dreams and you typically hear about the stuff they want to get one day. The lifestyle they want to leave. And Jesus, though, says that God speaks to this man in this parable and says he's a fool. He's not recognizing that possessions mean very little in light of eternity. And he's not realizing that living for those possessions has been obstructing his relationship with God all along the way. And Jesus offers an alternative to this narrative. One which is infinitely more satisfying to our souls. For Jesus, the good life starts and ends not with our stuff, but with God. For Jesus, the good life starts and ends with God. Everything good is from God and in God. Therefore, to experience the good life is to know God and to walk with him. Period. There's no addendums to that list. We could say it simply like this, in light of our spiritual discipline of simplicity, we might say it like this. Living simply, then, helps to make God our treasure. Living simply helps to make God our treasure. By embracing a simplicity attitude towards all the stuff and time and activity and pursuits and all the things around us, we grow closer to God by investing in what matters instead of investing in what doesn't. So I want to take some time to explore the idea of simplicity here as a concept. And we're going to see the way Jesus then applies that principle throughout the rest of this passage. First, let's think about the term. Simplicity. Sometimes you might hear this term expressed as simple living or frugality perhaps or minimalism. And it's not just a design aesthetic. You don't have to like the look of a minimalistic living room in order to embrace a spiritual discipline of simplicity. It's far more than that. Each of those terms can help us understand it, but historically, simplicity is the term, so we're we're using that. And I think it's helpful to give some definitions to help us understand it with an explanation. Because just to be clear, we don't misunderstand simplicity. Let me just say this. Simplicity is not poverty. Being unable to provide for your most basic needs is hard. It's damaging to us emotionally and physically and psychologically. This isn't what Jesus is celebrating and talking about this truth. It's something that Jesus calls his people to work against in many ways. And simplicity also isn't asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that having any possessions or any luxuries is wrong. It's bad. It's forbidden. Simplicity is not about living with nothing. It's about living with less for a purpose. 
So actually, the result of simplicity becomes more. The result of simplicity is having more of what matters, more freedom, more generosity, more focus, more relationship, more understanding of God and who he is. That's what simplicity brings about. And you can define simplicity a lot of ways. You might say that it's choosing to leverage time, money, and talents and possessions towards what matters most. Or living in the tension of having good things while refusing to let those good things have you. There's some fun ways we could think about this, and I've read that people talk about it. But I'd like to use this definition. The habit of simplicity is a spiritual habit. It's a single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, initiated by the work of the gospel, and it results in an outward lifestyle of modesty and minimalism. It's a single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom initiated by the work of the gospel, resulting in an outward lifestyle of modesty and minimalism. I think it's important that we notice the flow of this definition because it matters. This definition doesn't start with your stuff saying you can't have X amount of stuff or make X amount of dollars or like it's not an equation. It starts with our heart's Focus, the single-hearted focus on God, because our hearts and what they're focused on drive our lives, right? It's only when our hearts are single-heartedly focused on God that we can be released from the false promises of marketing and materialism, that having stuff is what we need to be happy. When we're focused on God, we can begin to experience the good life in his kingdom, And God has to give us that grace. He has to bring us to life to see that through the gospel. So in that sense, simplicity is what happens to us when we focus our hearts and lives on the thing that matters most and the thing that's brought us to life, Jesus and his kingdom. So as we work out this habit of simplicity, we shouldn't think, tell me what to do, or tell me what not to do, or am I doing enough here That's not the way we think about spiritual disciplines. In general, that's not the way we think about simplicity specifically. The entire goal of a spiritual discipline isn't to experience success in that discipline. It's to know God. That's the purpose. And simplicity is a result of knowing him more. So, the how to do this becomes less important than who is reigning in our hearts. And in our minds. But that said, I'm rushing along. Jesus does go on to give us some how-tos on how to have a lifestyle of simplicity. And so in verse 22, he says this. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. This is connected, right? He's just talking about simplicity. He's just talking about your life not consisting in what you have. And so he goes on to say, knowing that people are starting to get freaked out about the idea of not building their life around having stuff, about not building bigger silos to keep the more stuff they get, people are getting nervous, and Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Life is more. Right? The good life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Give some examples. Consider the ravens. 
They neither sow nor reap, nor do they either have storehouses or barns, and yet feed, God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And that's rhetorical. The answer is we are. Much more so. Verse 26, if then you are not, oh, sorry, verse 25, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing about as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil or spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. As Jesus begins to encourage his disciples towards living richly towards God, towards a lifestyle of simplicity on this earth, he gets right to the heart of the matter by dealing with the thing that often hinders our simplicity. It's our worry, our worry, our anxiety. And he says, don't be anxious. Don't worry. And anytime we talk about this, I think it's important that we pause to acknowledge Jesus is talking about the spiritual sin of anxiety and worry, not the biological condition of anxiety. And whenever our bodies are broken, mentally, physically, it's good to pursue the wonderful, sovereignly provided medical treatments that can help address those problems. That is a wonderful thing, and you should always consider that the symptoms may be similar, but the root of the problem may be different. Jesus isn't talking about a medical condition. He's talking about a spiritual sin. And in addressing worry from a spiritual root, he says, don't be anxious. To live simply, don't be anxious. That's his first application. And we all struggle, I think, with an inclination to be worry, to be anxious about the idea of living with less. And if you don't believe me, I could give you a specific application point today. It's Memorial Day weekend. You might have an extra day off. Tonight, here's your homework. I'm, this is just an example. This is just a, a theoretical. Don't actually take this as an application. Go home today. Get rid of 75% of the stuff in your house now. Now, at first, some of us are like, freedom, finally, I can breathe. Right? Like, I've been needing to do this for years. But I promise you, the second you start, that attitude will change. <laughs> as soon as you go to put away that one thing, or to give away that one thing, or to sell that one thing that you haven't even used in five years, instantly the worry starts to begin. Well, what if I need it again one day? And you, you look at your house, you're like, 75% of the stuff, man, I've got three TVs. I guess i got to get rid of two of them. But we can't be that one family in our neighborhood that only has one TV. Like, what are people going to think of us? Right? Like, or literally no one in America only has, like, you know, the, the thoughts start to come to our minds. Man, what if we need this one day? And, and how will others think about us? And how can I view myself with happiness if I pull into an address and that zip code? And, man, the worry starts to build up. Because our hearts trust in having our stuff. Jesus calls us to recognize that living simply makes God our treasure. So we shouldn't worry because worrying about our stuff 
is an indication that stuff is our treasure. Allowing other things to give us a sense of safety or worth or happiness ends up replacing God, it's idolatry, as our treasure and making stuff our king. Because our worry reveals what we worship. And so to combat that, to encourage simplicity and the necessary call to be free from worry, Jesus invites them to consider two realities. He says, look at the way God provides for birds. Look at the way God provides for flowers and cares. God is faithful. You can trust him. You don't need to worry. Our God has it. Stop trusting in your stuff to get you across the finish line or to have a happy life. God is faithful. And then he also points out, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? Like, does anxiety do anything for you? Has it done anything for you? Result in wonderful conversations around the house. Peace and tranquility. No. Worry is useless. It accomplishes nothing. Just like, let's just be logical about this for a second. Why worry? Why let it control and motivate our life? He says, it's a sign of a lack of faith. Oh, you of little faith, he says in verse 28. For the Jesus, the issue starts with what we trust. Do we tr trust in God? Do we tr trust that he is our provider? Do we trust that he will take care of us? Do we trust that he will give us what we need to accomplish his plans, to love the people he loves? Do we trust that he loves us? We don't have to worry because Jesus knows that God can be trusted, that God and his kingdom are good and will last so we can live by faith in simplicity even and not need to worry about our safety net, about anything else that might hold us up in an economy that seems uncertain. And Jesus continues building his case for simplicity. He says in verse 29, And do not seek what you will eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. If we're going to experience the good life and make Jesus and his kingdom the ultimate priority of our life, then we need to seek his kingdom first. Matthew 6, in, his, in Matthew's retelling of this moment in Jesus' ministry, says that Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So to live simply, we have to seek God's kingdom. That's the second application. We don't be anxious, and then we do seek God's kingdom. For Jesus, the heart of simplicity boils down to seeking the kingdom of God first. It's our single-hearted focus. And so we ask ourselves, is God's kingdom the sole priority of our life? Or do we seem to have other goals and priorities that are superseding his mission? Jesus wraps up his thought when he says this in verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says, 
God wants to do what God delights to do. Like, God is excited and passionate and thrilled with advancing his kingdom. It's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom for others to know him. That's what God is excited about doing. You don't have to worry about where his heart is at in this. And so, he he releases them. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To embrace the idea of simplicity with the kingdom as our single-hearted focus, we end up asking ourselves, what can I do with all that I have, with all that I earn, with my abilities and my possessions and my leftover food every night at dinner time. What do I do with all of this stuff? I've been changed by the rescue of the gospel through Jesus. I'm confident and free from worry because I'm not worried about acquiring and keeping more stuff. I'm seeking God's ways as my only heart's objective, and I'm sure that God is happy to unleash the love of his life through the gospel. So what do I do with my more than enough that God has given me to work with, to live simply, I give it generously. I give generously. Jesus says, sell your stuff. Give it away. If you want a practical tip to live simply, here it is. Don't hoard your stuff. Sell it. Don't hoard your money. Give it. Don't hoard your life. Invest it. Don't hoard your abilities. Use them. For Jesus, the lifestyle of simplicity leads to generosity. It's not just about giving from what you have left over. It's about alleviating ourselves from anything that keeps us from God and then leveraging that so that we keep keeping to need God. Jesus calls us to have a heart that is so singularly focused on his kingdom that we joyfully discover ourselves living a modest and minimal lifestyle in order to be radically generous. Jesus concludes with a simple statement. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What we do with our money, our life, our energy, our schedules, our relaxation, what we do with the stuff God has given us guides what we love, guides our heart, guides what we're focused on. So when we put away worry and get most passionate about God's agenda and give generously, we are showing an increasing evidence of a life that is built around the way Jesus lived. Simplicity so that I can have the most in my relationship with God. So I can enjoy him more than I otherwise would weighed down by so many things. So we ought to start small. Or maybe you ought to start big. Frankly, as the Spirit would move you, I believe that the Spirit might move you far further than I could ever pretend to hope that God might move you. God might call us to radically live lives of simplicity so that we could radically know Him and His ways. Radically showcasing His heart. But know this, church. If we follow Jesus and his life of simplicity, it will cost us. It will. Your life's going to look way different. 
And culture might even define your life as a loss. But as much as it will cost us to live a life of simplicity, it would cost us more not to. It would cost us money and time and a life of justice and the gift of a clean conscience. And it would cost us time for prayer. It would cost us the ability to have an unrushed and unhurried soul. It would cost us the opportunity to have a life that is truly a good life. A life lived in connection to and worship of and adoration of the God who designed us to find happiness in him. Let's not miss out on that, this side of heaven, by trying to purchase and have things and a lifestyle and activities that in overpopulating and overhoarding our lives distract our hearts from the one who made them. The reason we pursue living simply is to make God our treasure so that we could, like Paul, say, actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything and the one who makes me who I am. May we have that attitude.